Hello there and welcome to Defiance. I'm your host Peter McCormack and today I have an interview with Vyra VK Freiberger, the first female president of Latvia. Vyra has an incredible story. Following World War II, when the Soviets were encroaching on Latvia, Vyra's family fled to a German refugee camp and then moved to Morocco before settling in Canada. Vyra had a successful career as a professor at Montreal University and in 1998, when her retirement was closing in, she was offered a job heading a new Latvian institute. At 60, Vyra accepted the job and moved back to Latvia. And within eight months of returning, she became the country's first female president and proved to be hugely popular in the job. This is the first time I've ever spoken to a president and was an amazing opportunity I couldn't turn down. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did making it. But before we get into that interview, I do also just need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you would like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. And I also have a beginner's guide on there, which can help you understand everything related to Bitcoin if you're new to it. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is also an opt-out of government fuckery. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. If you want to find out more, head over to kraken.com. Also, if you enjoy Defiance and want to support the show, please do leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media and share this out with your friends and family. If you do have any questions about this or any of my other shows, please do feel free to email me. My email address is peter at defiance.news. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient. Resolute. Defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Good morning, Vara. Good morning, Peter. Thank you for giving me your time today, and thank you for inviting me out here. Uh, very nice to meet you, and quite an unusual day to meet you. Obviously, I'm from the UK, and uh, today... We're going through our Brexit. Yes, sir. Today, these last hours, we're still fellow Europeans, and tomorrow we will be no longer. I think we can still be fellow Europeans, but maybe... Well, in the, in the sense of a specific yeah. Europeans, you see. Yeah, it's. Uh, I have mixed feelings about it, but as you championed and led Latvia as they joined the EU, how do you feel about UK Exeton. Very sad. I think it's, uh, to me, sounds like an unwise and precipitate decision. And I think it's particularly unfair to the people of Scotland, who, after all, quite systematically voted to remain. And they haven't got any choice, really, in the matter. So, it, in a way, it's unfair to them. Yes, because obviously, they, when they had their vote for devolution, they were promised that uh, we would be part of the EU and that's a and that was part of the deal yeah so what do you think will happen with Scotland well the Scots will tell you what they decide obviously I think some of them are thinking it over right now so you obviously champion for Latvia to become part of the EU what has been the biggest gains for Latvia we have been consolidating uh our place on this continent, where one tends to draw barriers, 
and between different parts of it. And uh, uh, in our case, the barrier was literally, quite literally, an iron curtain. Uh, it was. It took various manifestations. It was the ma the mower, the the wall in uh, in Berlin. Uh, in Latvia, it was a 50-kilometer stretch of the seaside that, for half a century, was emptied of its fishing villages for fear that they might run away from the workers' paradise. You see, in their boats, the boats had to be burned up and. And the region was forbidden. Liepai, the harbor city on the west coast, uh, where some of my relatives moved after the war, when I first came to visit Latvia during the Soviet times as a tourist from Canada, my uncle, when I accompanied him to the train station so he could buy a ticket back home, he had to show a certificate that he was an in permanent inhabitant of Liepai because even Latvians were not allowed to visit that militarized city uh, with rockets, by the way, pointing to London as well as other places and a fleet, uh, submarines and all that sort of thing. Uh, so for us, in other words, all that, yes, and the seaside combed uh, with a sort of machine like a rake so that if anybody, I don't know, wanted to swim across to, to Gotland or something, uh, their, their steps could be seen. And there was, of course, uh, a sort of paranoia that they were going to be invaded uh, by, by unfriendly Western powers, that sort of thing. Well, you know, we really left all that behind with a great deal of relief and the, and the feeling of being able to freely travel without needing visas and stamps and, and, and so on within the European Union. We, we joined the Schengen zone, we, uh, we, we joined the Eurozone, we joined just about everything there is to join because uh, after all that uh, imposed and brutal separation, we would like to breathe freely and interact with others freely and, uh, as a matter of fact, to contribute our part to building a European continent that will not have those kind of divisions, be there between the north and the south or the east and the west or whatever. So Brexit is, you see that as a breakaway from the freedoms that you wanted to bring to Latvia? It seems to me a turning away from a project that, granted, was not started by a Brit but by a Frenchman, I suppose. That, mm -hmm. that probably irks some people that it's a European project that was not initiated by Britain and that Britain was, uh, in fact, took, took its sweet time and so did France in, uh, you know, the one to apply and the other to accept. Um, but 40 years is an awfully long time to be building something together. It's, uh, it's the way when I hear about old friends divorcing, I say, well, you know, if they could last that long, why not a bit longer? It's hard to understand. Uh, do you fear that any other countries may consider, after watching the UK exit, may consider it themselves and we may see a slow breakup of the EU? Not because of the of the British example, I don't think. No. Uh, it's been a bit of a circus uh, for the last three years. I don't think that's an example to anybody. But if their own, 
if their own governance uh, is unsatisfactory to them and if they feel that the deals they get into, after all, we have to make deals with our fellow mm -hmm. member countries for the budget and all sorts of things, our defense and what have you. Well, if somebody feels slighted and, and uh, passed over or what have you, uh, it's never excluded. This is why uh, the clause is there. I mean, obviously, the, the people have to decide. And who knows who may decide. But I can't see people just all of a sudden watching their television and seeing that circus in the British Parliament saying, oh, whoop we do that's the sort of thing we want to imitate. No. Well, I was thinking more if we move a few years down the line, perhaps the fear about what the impact of the Brexit would be were unfounded if uh, the UK was to prosper afterwards. Perhaps other countries may look at that. Uh, other, I, I think perhaps other political leaders might look at that as a opportunity to seek votes from the population by saying, "Here's a great example of the UK having a success." And, and I, I'm kind of leading more to the the right wing politicians. Well, we'll watch and see with interest if if uh, all of a sudden uh, the people in Britain find their income doubled and. Uh, uh, all the shackles that that ghastly European Union had put on them, thrown away, and and here all of a sudden they're waving Union Jacks and are, are increasingly happy and prosperous and so on. Well, we'll certainly applaud it uh, for sure. Whether uh, immediately somebody will think that that's even in such a case, I think each country has its own path and its own. You know, they look their own history. Uh, they do like we do. Look to their geographical position. Well, that, that plays a role. When you're an island, it's more easy to say. Well, you know, Don said uh, no man is an island, but I think the Brits frequently think that a country is, is an island, and it is. So. Um, the the others who are not an island, who've been trampled all over by, by foreign troops coming from every direction uh, of the compass, feel differently about solidarity and about cooperation and being part of a larger whole, which together can assure a collective security. So do you think that plays a big part, the history of certain countries, you know? You obviously experienced leaving Latvia as a, as a youngster, moving to Germany and, and then after Canada, but you had a, probably a very different experience uh, under, you know, a country under Soviet rule for a certain period of time. Do you think that experience probably leads people in countries such as Latvia and Lithuania to be more pro-European than, say, pe than people say in the UK? I think that you're pro-European... Uh, as soon as they were able to, to have access to publications uh, in the rest of Europe. In 1802, there was a very serious peasant uprising uh, in northern Latvia, in Vizeme, and uh, naturally put down brutally by the local Baltic German barons uh, and uh, Tsarist troops. But why did this happen is the way they were being treated, and the way they were being treated, they realized, was grossly unfair and brutal. And they had read about the French Revolution in German newspapers. And they said that if the king could be deposed, an unjust king in France, uh, then maybe people had a right to ask for certain minimal entitlements as human beings. So that, you see... Uh, uh, Latvia has been linked to Europe, uh, first by, by the invading crusaders, uh, against their will, but 
linked nevertheless. It was Terra Mariana and belonged to the Pope, you see, the Pope and the Bishop of Riga and the, and the Crusaders who became uh, um, landowners. Later, it, uh, it went through the Reformation, and the Reformation was an institution that required people to be able to read and write very early in European history. And I think this business of our people, the part of Latvia that was turned Lutheran, and who were given the opportunity, even the peasants, even the serfs at the, the Tsarist occupation, uh, serfdom was introduced under the Tsars, the, the ability to read and write already kept them in contact with the rest of Europe and the humanist uh, uh, trends that happened there. And as soon as it was possible, Latvians in the 19th century went to universities in Berlin, in Königsberg. Uh, painters went to, to Finland and to Belgium and, and to the university in Tartu and so on. So uh, that is where all our past uh, has led us and where our geography still puts us. We are on the eastern borders of what is now the Union, uh, but we're still part of it. So I think I think my listeners would very much love to hear the, the your story of your background, and I know you will have told it a few times, but the story of you leaving Latvia as a child, you know, your experiences in Germany, your experiences in Morocco, and how you ended up in Canada, that's all, I'd love to hear hear that, and you don't have to give me the, the long version, because I think that's very then, it's very interesting to hear about how you wanted to maintain your Latvian uh, heritage, you wanted to respect your Latvian heritage, and then you wanted your children also to understand their Latvian heritage. Do you mind telling that story? Well, I'm starting to, to write it up and in oh, English fantastic. so that it doesn't have to be translated. Great. <laughs> I was six years old when on the 10th of October 1944, my parents took an opportunity of the, the, the German army retreating and uh, allowing civilians who wished to leave uh, the, the front line which was approaching just to, you know, if you're there tomorrow morning at 5.30 or something like that, or 5, uh, as many as can, can climb into that truck. Uh, each can take uh, a couple of suitcases, each family, and then we'll go west. And the front was approaching, and on October 13th, Riga was taken by the Red Army. So that the the part of uh, Latvia that was called the, actually the... I don't know, there's a special term for it. There was armed resistance after the May 8th armistice in Western Latvia. Armed resistance in the forests from people who fled to the forests continued until practically the death of Stalin. There was a war after the war. But um, my parents had been hoping, they had this uh, dream that uh, obviously the Germans were losing the war, uh, that the end of the war would come and the Allies being, after all, the forces of freedom and democracy would see to it that, well, the Germans would be chased away back to Germany, but the Russians also back to Russia. Seemed to us, to them, I mean, as a child, I was just listening to this. And that was their reasoning. So my mother, she washed and starched her curtains and, and put a clean... A linen tablecloth on the table and washed her floors and, and, and said, well, um, 
if it happens as we wish, that the war end will come and, uh, and Western powers and the Allies will see to it that countries that had been part of the uh, League of Nations would recover their freedom, then we can return to our home. And then they, my mother said, well, of course, supposing we do not return, the people who will move in here will at least, I'll have the satisfaction to know that they will look at it and say, well, these are civilized people who lived here. So that they accepted the idea of a loss. But the poor souls, of course, had no idea and could not have an idea. First, the secret part of the protocol, the protocol of the uh, Hitler-Stalin Pact or the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of 1938, uh, 39. And they had no clue about what Mr. Churchill and Mr. Roosevelt had so kindly handed to Stalin on a platter. They both thought they were so clever, you see, and they all they were interested uh, in uh, in winning the war because they were scared of the Germans, really, and they needed the Russians to help them. And there's a phrase in in somebody's memoirs who quotes Churchill as saying to his assistant, "Of course, if while they because the assistants were also having debates while the, the uh, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin were meeting." Um, if Stalin asks for the Baltic countries, of course you give them to him. Of course. That, of course, is what uh, sealed our fate. And uh, we did find out about it eventually. And it created a sense of injustice and of something that should not have happened. And that our people who were left behind under the Soviet occupation could do nothing about. Because, as I say, there was armed resistance. And all it led to is increased numbers of mass deportations. Where in the middle of the night, people were woken up, told you're half an hour to pack, not told where they're going. And uh, then all families, pregnant women about to give birth, small children, uh, sick old people, uh, everybody packed into cattle trains. Uh, and then for weeks, uh, for weeks, taken to various parts of Siberia, including the very, very far east, especially the men. They couldn't, obviously, manage to do anything to change things. We felt that we had to do what we could to preserve the idea of a free Latvia that the Latvian people deserved. Precisely because uh, we feel that everybody deserves freedom, that everybody deserves a choice of how they be governed. And being a small nation that uh, has lost huge populations in every conflict that there has been in the last hundred and more years, well, we feel that there's a place for our culture, our cultural heritage, uh, for our language, for our uniqueness, for our identity. And the ones who, who managed to get away and survive, it was their sacred duty to keep it alive because there were so few of us. And here in Latvia, they were being turned into homo sovieticos uh, by every means possible. And the Sovietization and the Russification of the country was proceeding at a very fast pace. So that uh, I myself, when I was in my middle years, looking at the statistics, uh, I said to myself, if this goes on, for another 30 years or so, even if came the day when there would be a referendum in Latvia about independence, 
the Latvians would lose because they would be already a majority, a minority, and there would be a, a different majority in a country. And that was the aim. Uh, big projects were undertaken here in Latvia and huge numbers of people imported from the Soviet Union and then they would be joined by their families and, and so on. The deportations did cease after Stalin's death. That's one thing. Uh, but the depopulation, uh, the repopulation, the Russification proceeded at a very strong pace. You have obviously a very, very deep understanding of the history of uh, European conflicts, European politics, and Latvian and Russian history. Was this something that was part of your entire life? You know, as you were growing up, did you take an interest as a as a youngster, or is this something that developed later as you as you became older and you became more interested in your Latvian history? I'm trying to think. You know, did you have your teenage years and your youthful years where you were, you know, just you know, uh, in education and working, or was this a constant part of you? Well, the first constant part was that the um, occupying forces of Germany after the war, French, English and, and American, put people in camps, in refugee camps, displaced persons there. And I'm not sure how many million there were. Some say 7 million, some say 17 million. Uh, I'll have to, that is something I'll have to look up and find out. Lot of people. And they were regrouped according to their nationalities so that Latvians were put together. And what that made possible is a continuation of some sort of social life for people who are absolutely, as French say, déracinés, pulled out by their roots from, their, from the soil in which, the social soil from which, where they had been living. Imagine uh, you, you pick up a suitcase and you get on, a, uh, on top of a truck I was at the very top of the suitcases because I was so small. <laughs> and, uh, oh yeah, and we had three times we had uh, uh, air raids uh, and we had to jump off uh, the truck and, and, and run into, uh, lie down flat in ditches or into forests or, or something of that sort. So it wasn't, you know, uh, a fun ride or anything of the sort. The living in the camps, you have lost everything. I had three grandmothers, it so happened, because my, my own father was dead, my mother remarried. So I had uh, three sets of grandmothers and grandfathers. I had uncles and aunts and cousins and neighbors, uh, my, my, my parents' friends and so on. And uh, imagine people who were uh, recognized as painters, uh, writers, uh, poets, uh, musicians, civil servants, uh, sort of directors of, of uh, factories and so on and so on. All of a sudden they're nothing and they're nobody uh, and they're just there with some of them alone, uh, some of them a few members of their family. In some cases the larger families managed to come, say for instance, three sets of brothers and sisters uh, with their families. That was exceptional. But living together made it possible to have some sort of Line. There's a whole literature about it because it's a very extraordinary uh, sort of suspended animation, but uh, life goes on. You're living in suspended animation as far as your social milieu goes. You, you, you have your bunk, two-storied bunk, somebody else is uh, sleeping on top of you or under you, and um, less than a meter away there's a next bunk. And, and there's a large, uh, what had formerly been, say, military barracks, uh, large rooms full of these things. And then uh, first uh, there'd be a sort of cafeteria. Later people had certain opportunities to make their own food. I mean, it's, it's a world apart. 
Uh, and then started the immigration and people getting started. And then they realized that what they had in the camps had its advantages because you are still using your language and interacting with your own people. Once you go to Australia, to America, to Canada, to Venezuela, to Brazil, you have to learn a completely new language, uh, find yourself a new uh, occupation. Uh, many Latin writers became janitors in New York. One of them wrote a book, The Janitor. Janitors in apartment houses, recycling, as it were, your, so your talents. Oh. One thing that I, you know, looking back at your story and your history, is there seemed to be a sudden change to the to become to move back to Latvia and become a politician. It's almost like you didn't plan to become a politician, and this was a bit of a surprise. What was the journey to, from Canada to Latvia to suddenly becoming president? Because it was a very short turnaround. It wasn't like a career of politics. No, no. Well, look, when I arrived in Canada, everybody called me a new Canadian. <laughs> and somebody was saying, well, they were about to have elections, and I couldn't have a thing to do with the elections since I didn't have the right to vote. That kind of put me off politics. I said, oh, well, you know, who needs it? I, I have other interests, and uh, if if I have, if I, you know, no right to participate in the political process, I don't need it. Let, let them do it. I'm living here, I'm working here. Of course, I did get my citizenship once, uh, once I'd done that. That was six years. It was quite, quite a significant amount of time. I did get my citizenship, and I did start to vote. But by then I was established as an academic, and even though the father of the current Prime Minister of Canada uh, was a professor uh, initially at the Université de Montréal and became, when entered first uh, Quebec politics, but essentially the Liberal Party and became its leader and then became Pierre Trudeau became uh, Prime Minister, I realized that he was Prime Minister because he was, he was both Elliot and Trudeau. And looking back on Canadian history, every politician who ever became a prime minister was either of Anglo-Saxon or of French-Canadian background. There were no names from any different source. And I realized that I was not interested in, uh, in fighting that sort of battle. It was much more interesting to continue to answer the challenges of science, what I did engage in as a battle was to keep Latvian identity and language alive. And I became an activist from my earliest years. Uh, as soon as I practically, after my first hard year in Canada, when I was uh, working uh, full-time and, and uh, taking night classes so that I could write the exams or entering U of T, which I did at 17, discovered the others were 18, 19 years old, and, and I'd been foolish to hurry so much. But anyway, um, I, uh, I started uh, going to Latvian affairs again, because, for instance, the parties that the Latvian Students Club had uh, were fun, and the balls that the Latvian community organized also were more fun, as compared uh, to the howdy hops and, and the balls that, uh, that Canadians had. And so that more and more increasingly, uh, some of my social life concentrated on Latins, and especially as we grew up. Uh, I was a teenager when I arrived in, in Canada. Uh, we started worrying about the next generation, about first us sticking together and keeping the language and culture alive as we engaged in all our uh, various careers. And then at some point it was discovered by, almost by accident, that I had a talent for public speaking because uh, there was a, a festival organized 
between U.S. and Canadian young Latvians in Niagara Falls on the Canadian side because the Canadians who didn't have citizenship couldn't cross the border, but the Americans could. And uh, there was a, a competition of public speaking. And somebody wrote down my name and said, I, I, I've, when you speak, you seem to be able to sort of express yourself fluently. I entered you into the speaking competition. Well, I got first prize. And then I would be invited to lecture to, to young people about Latvian folklore. I started an interest in Latvian folklore uh, in all, all sorts of things. But you see, history is not something that so many people are interested in. Folklore is easier of access. And... Uh, and then I started being invited to the ceremonies that exiled Latvians faithfully kept on the 18th of November, the day of the Declaration of Independence of Latvia in 1918. They would have a ceremony and they would have an invited speaker giving a patriotic speech. Patriotic in the sense of saying Latvia deserves to be free and we want it again. And I, I had done practically the tour of the world with speeches, either courses for young people. I mean, I was in Venezuela, in Brazil, in various parts of Canada, of, uh, of the States, of Australia. People knew me. I, I also started publishing in, a, in an avant-garde magazine of which I was associate editor for a while. So I was known through, for instance, I had an essay on liberty at one point, based on one of my 18th of November speeches. I was not an unknown quantity. I was a social activist and a thinker about Latvian identity and Latvian fate and future. But how did you make the leap, therefore, from an academic and an activist in Canada to becoming president? Because it's, it's quite the leap. Well, you see, the fickle finger of fate has helped me out in various parts of my <laughs> life. And, and this one um, took the shape of an offer from my university to take early retirement. In Canada, you work until 65. The French may find it shocking, but yes, in Canada, it's been like this forever, I think. You retire at 65, including professors. And here at the age of 60, I, I get this offer that at first I thought I should refuse because I didn't want to live in poverty in my old age. I wanted my full pension. Uh, obviously not having, you know, uh, uh, as an academic acquired any kind of capital or riches, uh, living off my salary. But uh, then a mathematician friend calculated how much I'd be paying in taxes, taxes with what they... And, and, and they, they were giving me a special deal, believe it or not. The, there was an actuarial surplus in our university pension fund. And they wanted to get rid of the full professors who had the highest salaries so they could hire young professors at lower salaries also for the budget. And I took that offer... And three months later, I got a call from the Prime Minister of Latvia uh, saying that uh, he had, the cabinet had been persuaded by a group of intellectuals in Latvia to found the Latvian Institute and had, in fact, recommended me as its director. Uh, would I be interested? And I said, yes, I would be interested, but what does it mean? When do you want to see me? If I'll talk to my family, but when do you want to see me? Well, in two weeks' time? I said, well, maybe three weeks. And I did go in three weeks' time with two suitcases. My family stayed, my husband and daughter stayed behind. And the, the intellectuals who had convinced the parliament, not the parliament, but the government, to create Latin Institute and to put me as its director, had decided I was presidential timber. 
because I had been coming to Latvia and giving speeches in public as soon as the Soviet system fell, and even before that at the academy under controlled circumstances to uh, invited guests. But, and they also, uh, a book of mine, together with my husband, where we put together Latvian sun songs, over 4,000 texts, uh, classified into three sections. Uh, the the physical sun as a you know uh, as a body uh, that we see in the sky the cosmological sun because the Latins called the other world the other sun and the mythological sun who was a female figure and and seemed to have had a cult cult but way way back way back in history I was known for this work they they reprinted that book here uh, in ten thousand copies at the time when paper was actually uh, sort of, uh, in, there was a shortage of paper, but they, it, it became very popular. So did feel like I had contact, uh, certainly with, with the people who were interested in folklore, in Latvian, I used to have lectures on Latvian poetry, on Latvian literature, on Latvian identity, and people felt that the person who had such an understanding, if you like, of the soul of their, of their nation would not be a bad president to have on top of being multilingual and understanding the West and its mentality. It still must have been quite a leap for you to then suddenly become the president. It, was there a moment of like, did you have to take a, a, like a step back and just you know, look around and go, how has this happened? Well, I was helped very much by the fact that when the Republic was recovered its its independence the first of course uh, the the popular front split up into parties and there were elections and uh, there was a parliament and there was a government uh, but then came presidential elections and around the presidential elections and and the newly created presidential institution by my predecessor president Ullmann's uh, one of the aspects is that they followed the advice of, of Western countries, whom we hoped would become our allies uh, at one point, and they did, uh, that the president needs a security service in this modern world. Uh, and therefore, as soon as I was elected and walked out of the House of Parliament, it was sometime just after midnight, and after giving the first interviews on television, I see these gentlemen standing there and, and saying, uh, would you please come and sit in this car? And I said, uh, thank you, very. that's very kind of you, but uh, the, I was renting a sofa, if you like, in the living room of a friend in the old city for those eight months that I was uh, setting up the Latin Institute before my election. And I said, well, it's, it's just a short walk away. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll go back to my room all alone. And they said, uh, sorry, ma'am, but uh, we have been detailed uh, to look after your, uh, your safety. And, and we feel uh, that with the crowds gathering and so on, that it would be safer to bring you in a car. And that was, you know, my first step outside of the Houses of Parliament. The fact that I did have this security detail of, of whom I've heard many people complain how they interfere in their privacy. But to me... They were an absolutely visible and, you might say, tangible uh, sign of the, my change in status. In other words, I could not go for a walk. As some people say, what a nuisance. I cannot walk home the way I used to. When they say, you need to be accompanied, because you're not just you, 
you are the president and the country needs a president. And if it's taken all that trouble to elect a president, then that president needs to be protected. Yes. And so that you, who happened to have put on that mantle of president, you have to think of what it means. And I felt, in a way, you might say I had lent my body, uh, I've given it away for a time, to the presidential institution. I was not just me, Vaira, as a person, but I was the president of the country. Of that I became aware in the very first minute when I stepped out of that parliament. So you're, you were a very popular president. You, you know, you will be aware of that. <laughs> and also, when I've been here in Latvia and yeah, you know, whether I've been in the restaurant or in my taxi, I've been asking people, yeah, you know, what are their opinions of you? And and regularly people have been saying that you're the best president that Latvia has ever had. Do you think that your popularity and your success may have come down to the fact that you weren't a career politician, that you could come in with maybe, you know, without a history of being influenced by the political process, that you would just came in as a, you know, a passionate uh, Latvian? Certainly that would would have been, I think, uh, an element at the beginning, but I like to think that what I actually did <laughs> played a role in. I mean, I was president for eight years and, and no, worked I... very hard, and so that I feel the way I fulfilled that role that I took on, uh, at least, you know, for me personally, I would rather like to think that the way I carried out my duties evoked a positive response in a large number of people. Yeah, so, sorry, maybe misunderstood. What I meant is that the, the re reason you were able to come in and, and achieve so many impressive and important things was because you weren't a career politician. You could see things in a different way. I personally felt that uh, I did not miss having been a career politician. I had been president of just about every body that I ever joined. Mm -hmm. And I, I uh, even as an undergraduate at Victoria College, I learned uh, Robert's Rules of Order and Parliamentary Procedure uh, at the Victoria Students' Union. And then later uh, in, in the French milieu, I, I learned the code moral and how you, how you chair meetings and that sort of thing. So did you see, I had a certain administrative uh, experience. I was vice chairman of the Science Council of Canada, and we did give advice to the government on science policy. And we did lobby the, the uh, federations of social sciences, humanities, of the natural sciences, the, the presidents of these organizations, uh, of whom I was one, um, would go, and also some other uh, board members and, and, and famous, if you like, uh, individuals, we would go systematically to uh, lobby parliamentarians on Parliament Hill to tell them that Canada was just not investing enough in science, in knowledge, in research, and that was a political activity. And of course, holding together 35 different scholarly associations, including a French political scientist one, and an English-speaking political science political, uh, a, geo a physical geographers uh, association, and a human geographers association, uh, physical anthropologists and etc etc and trying to get them to actually establish policies for the advancement of these disciplines uh, or for the Canadian Psychological Association where each province has authority over 
professions, but where we try to get general standards for the education and, and research uh, that goes on in the discipline, the advancement of the discipline. All those activities, you might say they were academic, they were social, but yes, but they were also, they were political, and they certainly gave me some skills that I found extremely useful mm. uh, in, my, in my task as president. Very useful, indeed. Did, did you enjoy being president? Yes, yes, I certainly did. If you'd have been a president earlier in your life, do you think you would have wanted to come back and do it again? Because I understand there's a two-term limit, but you can come back. Will you come back anyway? Well, it's a bit like <laughs> the Russian constitution. Yes. It just doesn't say anything about it. But uh, when popular as I was, and I really uh, did get a, a send-off, a farewell, when people from all across Latvia all night long brought flowers on a hillside, and, 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 and I have pictures there on the wall, where uh, they made a huge... I know, 20 meters in diameter, a huge sun because of my work with sun songs of, of, of different colored flowers brought in throughout the night by volunteers and the army and I don't know who else uh, to thank me. But when my, my successor was not re-elected after four years, I did not hear any uh, desperate calls for me to come back and save the country. And I got the impression that surely you cannot step in the same river twice. It has to be a different river. And, uh, and I would then need, uh, you know, to think again about what kind of coalition of parties would be ready to support me. And frankly, I felt that I had been in that milieu for long enough and was ready to engage in other things. Yeah. To, to, to get, you know, a good part of my life back even though I have continued to be active, as I say, I just come back from this high-level group that UNESCO has created about the futures, plural, of education in 2050, if you please. Well, that's a long way away. Okay, so one of the things I've been um, trying to understand as an outsider coming in is understanding the the mix of Latvians and, and ethnic Russians, because there is a mix. Um, I've been to a Latvian restaurant, I've been to a Russian restaurant, uh, and the Russian restaurant, everyone was speaking Russian, and the Latvian restaurant, they'll speak in Latvian. Yeah, it's, it's an unusual thing to see coming from a country where everyone essentially speaks the, the same language. As somebody leading the country, as a president, and somebody you've talked about, you know, a, a deep desire to protect Latvian history, culture, heritage... Is that possible to do while also maintaining and keeping happy the uh, like an ethnic Russian minority? Is that something you can do, or do you have to? Can you only have a single focus? My appeal to anybody of other ethnic origin has always been that if they decide to live in Latvia, then really to live fully, they should take on all the privileges and rights and obligations of a citizen, just like I did in Canada. Yes. Even though I, f I knew that as a new Canadian, if I went into politics, in my years of, of uh, you know, middle years, uh, say, when I would have reached, say, I would not have had later, of course, they had governor generals and so on who were of visible minorities, never mind minorities and, and immigrants. But in, when I started out in life, this was an absolute no-no. If you wanted to get anywhere, you had to be either French-Canadian or Anglo-Canadian. It was as simple as that, and having, you know, ancestors there and all that sort of stuff. Quite so. It, things have changed. Things have changed. Too late for me. 
But here in Latvia, I have, have this. I have this conviction. After all, I went to a French high school. That was my foundation for my uh, education, and and I have very republican uh, concept of the republic, whereby uh, your first uh, your first belonging is to the republic uh, as a citizen. And as a citizen, you're equal to all other citizens. And uh, just as we have uh, freedom of religion, we obviously have also freedom of culture and, and, and food habits and anything you like to do, as long as you do not interfere with the rights of uh, the founding nation. Canada had, for, for a long time, talked to the founding nations, two conquerors, the Brits and the French, and it's only later that it acknowledged native, or what they no they call them now. There's a different name for it. There's no the word native peoples is not used anymore. It's a different politically correct. Uh, yeah. So, as an oppressed minority through much of its history since the 13th century, the conquest by the Crusaders, uh, yes, there is a a desire to have one place in the world where Latin still survives. And that is the official language of communication in the public sphere. But in the private sphere, uh, you can speak Urdu or anything you like. And, uh, and we have Armenian restaurants and, and Georgian restaurants and Vietnamese restaurants and Chinese restaurants and Japanese restaurants. And, and these people come here and people from Africa and some of them have married Latvians. I, I, I'm always charmed when at the folk, uh, uh, folk song festivals, which we have every five years, <laughs> a family comes up to me where um, mother is, is, is Latvian, the father from some part of Africa, uh, the children, uh, they have several children, and they want to take a picture. And, and of course, uh, I find that this is an enrichment to the country. It, it doesn't detract, because the children speaking are speaking Latvian, and they're dancing Latvian folk songs, singing folk songs, and, and dancing Latvian dances, even as many groups. I have also, I have many photos where I am here at this park that's outside. There's, um, I think, practically a yearly festival of, uh, of the ethnic groups, and they come from different parts of Latvia, the Roma and, and the Belorussians and the people from Tuva in Siberia, and, and various groups have, have, have their uh, songs and dances, they present them, and uh, uh, they are always thrilled to see me as their president, they are—I mean, even their past president, as a matter of fact—and uh, there's a sense of mutual acceptance. Uh, and it's only the Russians who have tried to make a political issue out of it. I find that and many ordinary Russians—I mean, no, what I call normal Russians who don't have uh, any uh, particular political agenda. Uh, are perfectly happy to accept the fact that, I mean, everywhere I go, I go to my dentist and the, the nur or, or to, my, to my ophthalmologist, the nurses, uh, the assistants, uh, the doctor, uh, they, if somebody addresses them in Russian, they answer in Russian, in public, in public spaces and so on and so on. But at least, you see, it's not like in Soviet times when my, my aunt complained that she went to pay her gas bill and uh, presented it in Latvian, and was told, don't speak your dog's language, speak human. Yes, yeah, so, well, that was very different. How about the teaching of language within school? Like, you have a belief that 
Latvian schools should focus on the Latvian language as the primary language. Is that correct? Well, we made a, a, what I consider a mistake at the beginning of independence okay. to have separate schools. Yes. Uh, for the Russian stream, if you like, and, and the Latvian stream. I think they should have been integrated. We also then, while we were at it, we, uh, we have an Ukrainian school. But all of these schools, the children do have to learn Latvian. Mm-hmm. It is just a question of how many of the subjects are taught in Latvian and how many of the subjects are taught in Polish, uh, Ukrainian, Belarusian, Estonian, Lithuanian. Uh, the Roma school did not survive because the Roma did not send enough children to school, so mm-hmm. they are integrated into the other schools. But I think that all the schools, myself and I went to high school in Casablanca, we had... Uh, we had French girls, of course, who were the majority, and, and the French, uh, uh, it was considered a French school and so on. Uh, but we had Jewish girls. Uh, we had, unfortunately, only one Arab girl, and she did not survive the milieu, you know. She could not, could not manage. But, but there were people uh, there, Italians and Spaniards, uh, uh, from the time of the war, from the time of the civil war, and uh, people from Yugoslavia who had fled away, all sorts of people. And uh, yes, and French culture was a unifying element. And, and we took civics, we learned about the French constitution, and what have you, it seems to me perfectly normal. Yeah. And then when the French were kicked out, well, the Moroccans were able to, to develop their own. Uh, school system, uh, but of course they also teach French in those schools uh, and, and English and so on. But you believe it's important therefore to have cohesion at an early age? I believe that that is better. Yeah. I believe it's better. The way I would see it is that they all go together in these schools and just as you have electives, the Latins would have more, say, courses on Latin literature maybe whereas uh, the, the, the Russians would have uh, Russian language and literature more extensively if they wanted. Mm. Um, you mentioned earlier the Russian constitution. We know that Putin wants to change, or is changing the constitution, um, uh, the expectation that he will maintain his uh, stronghold of power in Russia for however long them. A, a quite obvious erosion of democracy there, complete lack of democracy. Do you fear, and it should old Soviet states fear the Russian uh, influence and the influence from Moscow? Well, they have never managed to accept history, except uh, as, as the moment when the glorious moment of the Great Patriotic War when the war ended and they were part of the victors. They do not remember the millions that Stalin sent to their deaths because they were ill-prepared because in 1937-38 he had massacred and more than decimated the core of officers of the, of the Red Army. They do not remember the fact that the way they won many battles against the German army was to send wave upon wave upon wave of ill-prepared soldiers with simple guns against the German uh, machine guns and, and, and cadans and so on. What saved them was the climate. What saved them was the same mistake that Hitler did with his army that Napoleon did with his, that they did not ensure uh, a safe 
and and uh, and reliable system of uh, of feeding the army. Uh, by the way, the Battle of Poltava and the Swedish loss uh, at that time by Charles XII was exactly under the same circumstances. The Russians do not speak about the realities of the war. They have glorified into a moment when the Russian greatness was manifested at the end of the war because they were part of the victors and they were allowed to, they were allowed to, to, to rape and loot, etc. And that was a glorious moment. But uh, I think it's a great injustice to the richness of, of, of the Russian heritage uh, and, and to, the, to the intellectual uh, and cultural heritage of a country that used all that heritage always as simple propaganda for the Soviet system for, for 75 years and even now considers that their, their aim in life, their greatness consists of squashing somebody else. And they cannot conceive of continuing to develop their, their vast uh, riches uh, of history, culture, and, and things that they have already acquired, that they have, they simply seem to have to continue. I, I, would see, I would see, you know, the Russian people as profiting from the fall of the tyranny of the, of the one-party system and, uh, and, the, and this completely inefficient economy to just go ahead. But they seem to feel the need to somehow impose their will, impose themselves over somebody else. In other words, there's a sadistic tendency in that character. And that is unhealthy for the victims of sadism. But for the, when I was a student, we were taught that sadism is a perversion. It does not help a nation to fuel its sense of being great only when they are doing something, you know, to oppress somebody else. Look at Donbass. What the hell are they doing there? Is there still an influence over countries such as Latvia and Lithuania? Does Moscow still have influence or is it dissipated? Well, uh, lately, what I noticed when I was president, that they had a sort of rotating uh, target, for a certain time, they would attack Estonia in the press and in, in it, trying to get into international publications and, and whatnot about how awful the, the Estonians were and how terribly they oppressed uh, the poor Russians. Then uh, the focus would switch to Latvia. Uh, at other times, it, it might be uh, Lithuania, and then it, they would sort of rotate. I mean, all three were bad boys and girls, but there would be a special propaganda target uh, that that would rotate. Now they have uh, they're hitting Poland. They're rewriting history. Uh, so that that unfriendly attitude of somehow blaming somebody, rewriting the history, and 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 painting yourself as more heroic than you were, instead of actually sort of looking at things objectively about, if you like, the glory and the cost of it. And, uh, and was it done, was it a justifiable cost? The sort of thing we now ask our politicians uh, and, and uh, tear them apart, you know, when we think they've done uh, decisions that were not the best. But that doesn't happen. Mm. One is always attacking somebody else. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, your composure changed a lot then when I asked you about Russia. It, it's, um, I, I, you know, I understand why, you know, the, Latvia has a history that's had uh, 
you know very deep history behind the iron curtain and you know and i understand it but just just to witness that was very interesting see your composure change in what way you um you came forward and it's it's like it's it's very hard to explain but it's almost like this is a pain point for you still about the influence russia has it continues to yeah. send very nasty propaganda to latvia every day there are cyber attacks they invade our airspace and nato planes have to scramble and accompany them out of our airspace they are not friendly towards us at all so it is still a problem it It continues to be a a sort of uh, threat that hangs over our heads so it is a warranted fear oh yes and look at the look at ukraine Yes. Look at Crimea. Crimea. Look at Southern Ossetia. Look at Abkhazia. There's plenty of very nasty examples that happen not in Stalin's time, but happen now under this president's watch. And why do you think it's happening? Because to what benefit? This is where I think the the psychology Mm. comes in. Uh, his popularity shot up phenomenally after the annexation of Crimea. And so obviously that, if you like, that aspect of the psyche, of the Russian psyche, as I said, that he's been, that Stalin played up on not being a Russian, but he, he realized that that really resonates with Russians, the greatness of Russia. Oh, we have it, the greatness of France and Britain too, manifesting in different ways. I could tell you stories about that as well. But here is that, that one moment of, of sense of greatness by having, you know, having, either having colonies or, or annexing your neighbors or, or something of that sort. That appeals. And as I say, that is not an appeal to the better angels of our nature at all. In fact, it's not good for the people who get sort of focused on that sort of feeling. They should be focused on empowering themselves and what they can achieve, not trampling others underfoot. Misplaced passion, misplaced. A sense of glory that is, I think, centuries out of date. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'm, I'm very um, appreciative of having your time and I don't want to take up too much more because... You have uh, you have been busy and you deserve a rest. Um, just a closing point, really. I've started to travel the world quite quite a lot with my work. I'm off to Santiago this weekend. Um, I will also be off to Venezuela. Um, but I'm aware of what's been happening in Hong Kong and Paris, Iraq, Iran. Over the last year, we seem to have had a lot more protests. I can't put my finger on whether this is more awareness or there are actually more protests. But what's your kind of, and this is a big question, what's your kind of observation of the worldview at the moment and why we're seeing so many protests? That is a mystery. Because when you look at those protesting, it is very often people who are living better now at this point in history than they ever lived before, personally, and certainly better than their parents lived. France, after the war, 
was devastated. So was Britain. Britain had coupons, food coupons, currency restrictions, all sorts of things for many years after the war. Um, generally, populations have improved their standard of living. Chile is, after the disastrous uh, uh, economic crisis created by the Chicago School of Economics and, and the advice they had been giving the country, but when they recovered from that, it is uh, one of the successful countries of South America. And I think uh, Chileans, the average Chilean is probably, if you measured objectively all, all the quality of life, uh, would come out very well. But the protest started over metro tickets. And of that, course. I think, is, uh, is the way that these triggers, triggers are being used uh, and, and mass uh, and social media are being used to trigger resentments that, of course, could not be only about metro tickets. Obviously, there had to be a discontent, an underlying discontent that was smoldering under the ashes. And then somebody blows on the ashes through the social media. The gilet jaune, from what I understand, if you asked each of them what he or she is protesting against, you would get a dozen different answers. So there's nothing consistent in this? Mm. Not that I can see so far. No. Okay, so when's the book coming? Oh, Lord, it has to be written first, and I need the time to write it. <laughs> it sounds like it'll be a fascinating read. Well, look, good luck with it. Um, you have a beautiful country. This is my third time here. Uh, just a little secret. I've been to Estonia, Lithuania and Latvia. I think the food's best here of the three. Am I allowed to say that? I don't want to upset the Lithuanians, the Estonians, but the food here is, is pretty good. Well, you good. know, we have some terrific chefs. You do, you do. And the average cuisine also is, is I think, is very good. You're also the first president I've not only interviewed but met, so thank you for that as well. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> okay, You're take welcome. care. And, of course, this is not Latvia with its best foot forward. Midsummer. Well, Midsummer, is it? I've, I, so I've been in the summer, but this is pretty good for winter. <laughs> um, well, sure. Yeah, we don't have the snow and, the, and snow. the ice uh, and and the icicles. Yeah. As a matter of fact, when I arrived to, in Riga, uh, in the living in the old town, I had to be really careful uh, around this time of year because the snow uh, there would be uh, periods of thaw, and then there'd be huge icicles like that. Oh, right, and they're okay. lethal. Uh, if they fall on your head, they sort of go right through your, your brain. Uh, so one, one had to watch the, the buildings you walked under, and you couldn't necessarily walk on the sidewalk. You may have to walk in the middle of the street. Wow. And, and look, around, look out for, for cars. But this year, of course, no icicles, no ice on, on, the, on the pavements, uh, no snow. Wow. But it's no a beautiful frost. city. But, and the architecture, by the way, is incredible. Ah, and you know, the buildings are being, thank heavens, they are being renovated. They continue to be renovated. It, Riga is full of treasures of Art Duo that have not yes. yet been renovated. So my taxi driver said to me, he said, have you noticed the buildings? I said, well, yeah, I've noticed the buildings. He said, no, no. Have you really looked at the front of the the, the front of the building, the doorways? The, he said, just take a look. And the details on the facades it's fantastic. Incredible. So, yes. Sorry, I'm rambling on now, but thank you so much for your time. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I really hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did with Vira. 
As I said in the intro, it was an amazing opportunity to sit down and talk with Vira and to hear a story from fleeing a country as a child and returning to become president. An amazing opportunity and I'm very, very grateful to Vira for giving up some of her time. If you enjoyed this or you have any questions or feedback, please do get in touch. My email address is peter at defiance.news. Before we close out, I do need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, if you want to support the show, please leave me a review on iTunes or subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media or share it out with your friends and family. If you have any questions about this show or any other show I've made, please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news.